People find out about your work. I have a website. First was the sound.com. <laughs> <laughs> Very memorable. bringing the outside in. So this is uh, a New England forest about this time of night last week. Which is not unlike the sounds here at night the crickets and the frogs. Actually, this is primarily frogs. Different species of. So I was teaching a loving-kindness retreat with Sharon Salzberg and as I do most years, it's very delightful. And so we're uh, exploring how to open the heart and, and generate a, a genuine sense of warmth and friendliness and kindness to ourselves and each other and to all of life. And so it was my turn to talk and I, I was we were on the day of where we extend love to all beings, which can feel a little abstract. 
Right? What does all beings mean? We talk a lot about that may, in, in, in Buddhist circles. May all beings be happy. Right? And sometimes it can be said somewhat glibly. You know, not glibly, but um, without really contemplating what that means. So I began to reflect, what does it mean? What does all beings mean? That's a lot of beings. And, and spending a lot of time outside, which I do, and hopefully many of you do, we can also sense the profusion of life teeming. Just this, this, this night chorus. That's a lot of beings in the forest saying, me, me, look over here. Or whatever this, I don't know what they're saying. Maybe they were reciting Shakespeare, I don't know. So I did a little research. I was like, well, well who are all these beings? 8.7 million species. There's uh, some French, I think it was a French uh, scientist, did a meta-analysis of trying to collate, trying to understand how many species do we share this planet with? Millions and millions of species. And of those 8.7 millions of species, 16,000 are on the endangered species list. And so I did some more research. I was like, okay, well, what, what, of all those 8.7 million species, what, what, you know, who, what makes up that? So, and I, it's funny, that day I, I uh, read an article in The Guardian talking about the, the mammalian species, which we are part of, the mammal species. Well, it's not a species, it's a, you know, whatever it is, category of species. And uh, the article said that 60% of mammals are livestock. Are livestock, as in farmed. 60%. Hard to imagine. But not so hard to imagine if when you really take stock of, you know, Global agriculture and the meat industry, and 30, the, the, another thirty-six percent of mammals are you and me, Homo sapiens sapiens. So that's ninety-six percent of mammals on the planet are either livestock or humans. So four percent, the other four percent, are wild, wild mammals. I thought that was staggering that only 4% of the mammals left are wild. We've had a big impact on the planet. 60% of birds, of all the profound, profound multitude of birds, 60% according to this study, are poultry. That's stunning. So, 
you know, with as we become more subtle uh, in our understanding of other forms of life, um, you know, we're getting to understand that um, you know of the of the. Mm, you know, we have to we're, uh, and, uh, expanding our sense of what sentience means. Right? When when the Buddha talked about radiating kindness for all beings, he's talking about sentient beings, that which has some kind of consciousness. Right? And we're expanding our understanding of of the sentience of life, right? understanding the the complexity of life forms of octopi and. Species. I'm just watching Wild Blue Planet or whatever that wonderful series is by David Attenborough, and um, just the complexity and, and the intelligence of life in, in what we would previously thought not so intelligent. And I particularly enjoyed reading the book The Secret Life of Trees by the German um, field uh, biologist and. Forester who um, spent years studying this particular research forest in Germany and, and, and discovering how they communicate and how sensitive they are and how they respond to threats and um, you know, have a complex communication system through mycelium and, and other means. And so, so when we think about radiating kindness to all beings we might want to expand who that is not just people and when we are wishing all life to be well we also want to include all the life that is farmed which now comprises a lot of the the, the species of the planet so I was um, uh, on this retreat. I, I said to Sharon, who is a very self-disclosed, not nature lover, um, I said, I'm going to talk about nature and love. And she says, great, because I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> and I was very aware when I was giving the talk that not everybody likes nature. Not everybody loves nature. Not everybody likes to go out in it. It might be threatening might be intimidating, might be bad negative associations from the past. But regardless, we can't survive for a moment without it. We are nature and we live, breathe through the elements, earth, water, fire, air, teeming, streaming through us in every moment. So whether you like it or not, it's useful to have a relationship. Well, you have a relationship with it. (laughs) And it's also, you know, we, have, we can tend to have a romantic view of nature, but it's also wild, destructive. You know, it, was, it wasn't until the romantic poets in England um, who reframed mountains as, uh, from being ugly and wild and intimidating and scary. It was the romantics who moved to the Lake District in, in northern England in the... You know, 17th, 18th century, who romanticized, one of the first folks to romanticize the beauty of the wild wilderness rather than seeing something to be tamed. 
But as we know, we live in times where nature is uh, we're having this tremendous impact, climate change, and a lot of dysregulation, fires and storms and tornadoes and a lot of suffering. So I don't want to overly romanticize nature, but I also want to speak to, as I do a lot, um, the value of uh, nature, incorporating nature and our relationship to it as part of our Dharma practice, our meditation practice, our heart practice. And specifically tonight I want to talk about the relationship between love and nature and how nature is a support for many of the qualities that these teachings teach. And in particular, the Buddha framed the teachings on love in what he called the Brahma Viharas, or the, the divine or, or, or celestial abodes of the heart of love, boundless love, c- compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So I want to speak about how these these um, inform our practice and, and open our hearts. And I partly talk about nature a lot because we're in... Uh, an, uh, let me turn this by frogs. Um, because we're living in, in what Richard Louv called nature deficit disorder. And he's mostly applying that to children. There are children because of our fears of letting them run wild and because of screens, uh, children and uh, having less and less contact with nature and, and there's now a clinical disorder, nature deficit disorder. And But I think as adults, we also suffer from that. And I think we feel an impoverished life when we don't have access to nature. So very simply, so I've spent a lot of time sitting here, teaching here, and I'm very aware of how people come to Spirit Rock and fall in love with Spirit Rock as much for the land as for the teachings, or as the community. Just so delightful to be here, nourished in these very safe and protected hillsides. So you might just reflect for yourself the ways that your heart may have been touched. And maybe you see a, a young fawn, you know, freshly spotted fawn, you know, walking through the grasses, and your heart just feels this is sweet tenderness, this, this sweet natural, you know, delight, care. You know, every summer we have the swallows come nest up in the upper tree, upper meditation hall. And they, for some reason, choose the busiest place, which is outside the bathrooms, to nest. And they make these, you know, spittle nests, and the little babies are in there, shivering and hovering, and and you can't help but feel compassion for the vulnerability, for the tenderness. You know, I once was walking up at night. It was about midnight, and uh, I was on my way to sit, and the one of the great horned owls was swooping around. Uh, the courtyard and the poor parents of the swallows were freaked out, you know, because that's food for the owl. So, um, 
so to think about the ways that your heart is is touched. You know, I was, as I say, just teaching down the big Sur coast and just watching the sunset. You know, and, and it's just beautiful. I love seeing. You know, it just draws people outside to see this amazing daily feast of the senses. And then what happens at Essen when the sun goes down? Everybody claps. <laughs> You know, we just had a beautiful spring. Notice how much delight you might have felt with the blossom and the honeysuckle and the the poppies and the wild iris and the lupins. And it's hard to stay grim when you're looking at a California poppy. You know, brightens the heart. Can do. And I think you know. I think I feel very much akin with with Richard Louv in his in his um, his writing about nature deficit. That when we have less contact with the natural world, we we have a deficient life. I think it affects our soul, affects our body, affects our well being. And this isn't. This has been around for a long time. This is uh, from Rumi. He says, "When I was the stream." When I was the forest, when I was still the field, when I was every hoof, foot, fin, and wing, when I was the sky itself, no one ever asked me, did I have a purpose? No one wondered, was there anything I might need, for there was nothing I could not love. It was when I left all we once were that the agony began, the fear and questions came, and I wept and I wept, and tears I had never known before. So I returned to the river, I returned to the mountains, I asked for their hand in marriage again. I begged, I begged to, every, to wed every creature and every object. That's actually not Rumi. That is Meister Eckhart. Sorry for the misattributing um, 12th century European mystic, Christian mystic. You know, and so, you know, as, as a species, we've evolved for millions of years outside and had a very visceral, immersed experience of the natural world where there was no word for nature. It's just what was, what, what we're surrounded by. And, um, you know, these teachings, I would say, to some degree, came out of the forest. The Buddha was born in the forest, meditated in the forest, taught in the forest, died in the forest. Lots of his teachings, you can see the nature metaphors. And so nature is such a beautiful teacher of so many things. So many things that we're learning in the cocoon of meditation here are also very accessible outside when we bring a receptive attention to it. And why mindfulness, why I think mindfulness and nature have a a, a very important relationship when we've trained and cultivated the mind so we're receptive and attentive and aware, present, open, we're much more easily touched. We go outside for a walk and we're present, we're mindful, right? We feel, we see, we sense, and we're moved. Not just with nature, but with children, with with anything. But I I notice this particularly in nature. And so um, when I teach my nature courses, I share this prayer from the Ute peoples. And like 
probably all indigenous cultures have a very deep uh, relationship with nature and know the power of that contact. And, and in this prayer, it goes, Earth, teach me stillness as the grasses are stilled with light. Earth, teach me suffering as stoned, old stones suffer with memory. Earth, teach me caring as the mothers that tend to their young. Earth, teach me humility as the tree which stands, no, as the blossoms are humble with beginning. Earth, teach me courage as the trees which stand all alone. And earth, teach me uh, limitation as the ant which crawls on the ground. Earth, teach me freedom as the eagle which soars in the sky. Earth, teach me regeneration as the seed which rises in spring. Earth, teach me to surrender as the leaves which die in the fall. Earth, teach me to forget myself as melted snow forgets its life. And earth, teach me to remember kindness as rain drenches dry fields. Many, many lessons to be had when we're present. All of our life is a, is, a, is a teaching. There's a line from Kabir. He says, when the eyes and the ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees read like pages from the scriptures. So I want to explore a little more about what this theme is of love and nature and how they interweave. And I'm going to bring in some poetry, which I like to do because I think poetry so beautifully expresses often what these teachings are pointing to. So metta, if anything, loving kindness is about connection. Connecting one heart to another, one being to another. Feeling our kinship, our commonality, our interconnection, our mutuality. This is from D.H. Lawrence. He writes, we cannot bear connection. We must break away and be isolate And we call that being free, being individual. Beyond a certain point which we have reached, it is suicide. What mankind most passionately wants is the living wholeness, the living unison, not an isolate salvation of their soul. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me. That I am part of the earth my feet know perfectly and my blood is part of the sea. There is nothing of me that is alone and absolute except my mind and we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surface of the waters. So what are the things that we can learn from nature that teach us about love? What do you learn when you go outside? What does that inform you of the heart? It's a poem by a New Zealand poet called uh, Fleur Adcock. It's a poem called Weathering. And she's talking about the, the lessons for her about beauty and about acceptance. And I find that I notice this with, with, with myself and students that we can feel a sense of profound uh, acceptance and unconditional love when we're outside 
Because the trees and the bushes and the roses are not busy judging you for not being good enough, smart enough, cute enough, whatever, enough that you think you are or are not. Literally thin-skinned, I suppose, my face catches the wind off the snow line and flushes with a flush that will never wholly settle. Well, that was a metropolitan beauty, wasn't it? Wanting to look young forever to pass. I was never a pre-Raphaelite beauty. But now that I'm in love with a place which doesn't care how I look or if I'm happy, happy is how I look and that is all. My hair will grow gray in any case, my nails chip and flake, my waist thicken and the years work all their usual changes. If my face is to be weather-beaten as well, that's little enough lost. A fair bargain for a year among the lakes and the fells when simply to look out of my window at the high pass makes me indifferent to mirrors and to what my soul may wear over its new complexion. So one of the things that love is, is it's a non-judgmental presence. When when, when a heart is abiding in love, we're not busy critiquing and nitpicking and picking out faults and judging and all the things that we often do when we're in our mind. Anybody do that here? Anybody judge a little? You know, We take great fondness in sitting around judging each other and thinking that's going to make us feel better. And we sit around talking about people and judging them. Right? And may all beings be well. But that person in the office, did you see what they did yesterday? There was t- We do all these things that are kind of socially normal things to do, but not necessarily that uh, supportive of of our heart opening. And again, when we go outdoors, um, one of the things that I think it helps encourage is a non-judgmental attention. You know, there's a one of my favorite trees is just beyond the the upper retreat hall. This really old oak tree. Massive limbs, and and one of its massive limbs, which is big as a tree, fell off last year in the storm, I guess. And um, and it's as beautiful as it ever was, even though it's missing basically its arm, you know. And now it's just more wild and more beautiful and more rugged. And we don't go needs a little tidying up, a little, a little less of that lichen, that moss stuff, and get rid of that busyness. No, we just accept it for what it is. And maybe a little bit of that rubs off and we go, oh, look at these people all around. They're missing some things too and they're a little rough around the edges and they're, you know, aging and withering and decaying or whatever they're doing and can we love them in the same way or can we look in the mirror and go, oh, look at me, I'm just like an old withering tree. (laughs) Oh, well, it happens to all of us. You know, lines and wrinkles and gray and whatever, you know. And another thing that can happen when we're outdoors at times is we can feel a sense of home or we can feel a sense of belonging, or a sense of connection. I don't know about you, but when I'm 
working in a cubicle in an office, I don't really feel so connected and home. You know, that may be where we spend a lot of our time. But um, I know for me, my, it, I feel a sense of place and a sense of home through my body, through this, particularly through smell, through the quality of, of the air that my skin knows, of the, of the light and the changing seasons. And I think, again, we live in a, in a time where we move a lot, we move fast, and, and we're losing that sense of home, that sense of connection. Where the heart feels at ease, or it feels welcome, or it feels part of, or it feels included. Or we feel like we're um, part of the ecosystem, we're, we're, that we're enough to be here. This is a poem that some of you will know. I think is a great meta poem. You do not have to be good. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the sun goes on. The world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees and the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls you to, like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the scheme of things. So maybe it's not the geese, but maybe you go home and you go out into your backyard and there's a big old oak tree or a bay tree or a rose bush and it's like it's a friend. It's like you say hello or it says hello to you or it's welcoming, or it's inviting, or it's accepting, or it's allowing. So we want, you know, in, in, in cultivating any quality, we want to pay attention to what supports that opening. What, where does your heart open? Where does love for you Blossom. Where is it accessible? Where is it easy? You know, one of the things I love about teaching a loving kindness retreat is um, the the main orientation of that practice is to do it in the easiest way possible. And people always think that's a lie. <laughs> what do you mean easy? It's got to be hard. You've got to struggle. And you've got to fight and you know be there in the muck and. No, do it in the easiest way possible. Find someone that's easy to love. Go outside and if sitting in the rose bushes is where you feel happy, then do the practice there. Go for a walk around the lake and do the practice there. Whatever uplifts your heart. So, and we think that's cheating. If it's easy, it must be cheating. 
put yourself in in the way of where your heart blossoms. Right? Maybe it's being around children or relatives or mountains or your paints in your art studio or whatever it is. Where does your heart open? Where is it mostly touched? And I would say, you know, I don't think I'm alone in this, that, that for many of us is being outside. Birdsong, forests, the moon, the starlit night. So I was teaching a wilderness retreat in Baja, Mexico. Uh, this year I teach these, these lovely kayaking retreats. And some of you were there. And um, uh, in this one particular beach, uh, there's a, a cardinal that I've seen there, a red card, very bright uh, red bird in the middle of this pretty wild, rocky, arid desert. And it's always quite startling. And um, and so it reminded me of this poem that I read that I that it and it's, it really reminds me of how we can be moved and touched and how the heart opens in response. It's called Red Bird Explains Himself by Mary Oliver. Yes, I was the brilliance floating over the snow. And I was the song in the summer leaves. But that was only the first trick I had hold of among my many mythologies. Don't stop there. Stay with me. Listen. If I was the song that entered your heart, then I was the music of your heart that you wanted and needed. And thus wilderness bloomed there with all its followers, gardeners, lovers, people who weep for the death of rivers, and this was my true task, to be the music of the body. Do you understand? For truly the body needs a song, a spirit, a soul. And no less to make this work, the soul has need of a body. And I am both of the heaven and I of the earth, and I am of the inexplicable beauty of heaven, where I fly so easily, so welcome. Yes, this is why I have been sent to teach this to your heart. So I think about that poem a lot when I hear birdsong that penetrates, you know, just that sweetness, the innocence. So your homework for this week (laughs) is to go outside and just notice what arises for you in relationship to the natural world. Not to expect or demand or assume something will happen, but just to see. You know? one, of the, one of the teachings I give a lot on my nature retreats is to be mindful of the interplay, interrelationship that we always have with our environment. Wherever we are, we're always being moved, affected, touched, influenced, inspired by whether it's coming to a room like this where we come to be in the influence of other like-minded people, we come into a safe, reflective space, 
or you go into the redwoods to feel that sense of awe, or you go to the beach to feel a sense of vastness, or you go into your garden to smell the sage. And just notice what, 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 what happens in the heart when you hear the, the birds, the house finches chirping in the morning, singing their song. I was leading a, um, so I'm in the middle of a uh, teacher training. I'm training people to facilitate the nature of meditation work that I do. And um, we, so I took them out. We were in the foothills of the Sierras and I took them out to this particular stretch of the property where it's a beautiful vista of um, the, the Sierras and, and the sunrise, the sun coming up over the Sierra. And um, I over- forgot to check whether the cows were in the pasture and, and so we all trooped out. There was about 20 of us. We sat in this long line in the road and then this herd of cows came up, about as many as you lot, and they all just came right up to us. And we were sitting still, so they weren't quite sure what to do with us. They just came right up and there were the mothers and the calves the cows were a little more kind of curious and kind of like, oh. sort of like something going on there, but I don't quite know what it is. And 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 then you know we're looking in these deep black eyes, these beautiful faces and moist noses and these flapping ears and these beautiful you know bodies and. And it was a very sweet moment. It was, wasn't quite the sunset meditation I envisaged. But um, it was very tender, you know. And, and, you know, there's a bunch of mediators in the group, you know. And a couple of people said, I'm done with eating beef, you know. It's like, I can't do that anymore. I've just been spending an hour looking into the eyes of a cow and its calf, right? And it's real. You know, it's like this is, these are beings, right? And these are the choices we make. And so it's just interesting to see when we put ourselves in the path of those kinds of experiences, it can be tremendously impactful and fun. So nature can open our hearts to love to feeling that sense of radiance or connection that the Buddha spoke about. It's again from Mary Oliver. My work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly learning to stand still and learn to be astonished. My work, which is rejoicing, since all the ingredients are here. My work, which is gratitude, to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes and a mouth with which to give shouts of joy to the wren and the sleepy dug-up clam. So, 
as our hearts open, and certainly as my heart has opened as I've spent more and more time in this beautiful land of North America and in the wilderness and in the hills here and in the streams and the meadows and um, you know it's been a very integral part of my my Dharma practice, my meditation practice, my life practice. It's also tenderized my heart because we live in times where it's hard to feel so much love for something that's being destroyed. It's hard to feel the beauty of the oceans and whales and you know whatever it is that we're falling in love with. The monarch butterflies that I was hanging out with in Big Sur who are, are endangered, and um, and so so it, so the the next quality that the nature brings forth a lot is also compassion. Right? This, this tender-hearted care and response to pain, to suffering. Right? There's a lot of pain and suffering in this life, right? If 60% of mammals are livestock, there's a lot of suffering right there. So I was watching this film, uh, I may have mentioned this some other talk, um, called Chasing Extinction. Anybody watch that film? Chasing. So there was Chasing Ice. People probably saw that film, Chasing Ice. No? You've heard of movie theaters? You can go watch films. So this some people go, okay. Um, so Chasing Extinction is about these people who, uh, these photographers who go tracking um, uh, species that are going extinct and the trafficking of them, which is making them go extinct more quickly, and they try to... Um, expose that so that to, to diminish the, the impacts. Anyhow, the, the beginning of this um, uh, uh, film, they play um, this recording, and it's um, it's a, a recording of the Kauai O'o bird singing in in uh, somewhere in Hawaii, well Kauai, I guess, because Kauai O'o. Right? And um, it's the last remaining male. It's the last, the last bird of the species. So he's calling to his mate, but there is no mate because he's the last of the species.
heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah. It's heartbreaking to watch it also. You can watch it online on YouTube. <clears throat> Kawaii O-O, bird. So, part of our practice is to bear witness to life, to reality, to the truth. And one of the truths that's happening is we're losing a lot of species. It's a direct consequence of human activity, habitat loss, pollution, grazing, deforestation, you know the you know how it works. So these um practices, these heart practices, they're also fearless, right? It takes a lot of courage to turn our attention to that which is devastatingly painful. We love this earth, and if we love the species of this earth, and we know they're disappearing, this is tremendously painful. It requires a courage to bear witness. This is one of the qualities of compassion that has a courageousness to turn towards suffering that actually allows that compassionate movement to arise. And just as just as we might turn to our own suffering or the suffering of someone else. So just noticing what what's present in the heart, right? It's it's tender to listen to that. Right? Painful. And may that be a motivation, right? Compassion is not just a feeling, it's, an, it's a movement towards relieving the suffering. A movement towards wishing to help, wishing to do something. So you may reflect on what responds in our hearts as a response. The 16 other, 16 other thousand species on that list. And a whole countless amount of others that we don't even know about that will go extinct. That's hard to bear. Right? But I think it's important to also turn to that truth. Right? And to feel to grieve, to cry, to weep, to wail, and to rage, even. Let that sadness or grief or anger actually motivate you to do something. And this, you know, moving on to the next quality of the 
the Brahma Viharas of equanimity. And the equanimity underpins all of the other three heart qualities, love, compassion, and joy, is underpinned by this quality of balance or steadiness or resilience or capacity to face the truth. So we're in the middle, as you probably know, of the sixth mass extinction of the planet. This is not the first time we've been through a massive loss of species. That may help the equanimity. What I found very interesting when I read that 99% of all the species that have ever lived on the planet are gone. 99% 99% have already gone, way before Homo sapiens probably got here. 99% of all species that ever live on the planet, gone. Doesn't mean we don't weep for the loss of the Kauai O'o bird singing for its mate. Because right? that bird matters. Right? 99% is just a number. We might, you know, feel that tremendous tenderness when we see the newts, some of the newts that are endangered, even in Marin here. And there's many endangered species here in Marin. Um, The blue butterfly, I forget what it's called, in southern Marin. Very delicate. Can we feel that tenderness for life, right? The, The... Compassion tenderizes the heart. And so our mindfulness practice is is a great resource for staying balanced. And mostly, I don't choose to focus on the, the loss side of the balance sheet. Because mostly we, 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 we know that already and it's hard to hang out with that. And I think in terms of us cultivating resilience, we also need to be orienting towards that which is beautiful, that which is joyful, that which is uplifting, that which is nourishing. And one of the reasons I do my work and one of the reasons I work with environmental activists is to support people paying attention to the earth, to feel that sense of love, and to love what is still already flourishing and alive and beautiful and precious. This is from Mary Oliver. Again, a poem called Mindful. She says, Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light, It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world with joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, but of the ordinary, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how could you help but grow wise with but teachings as these? 
the untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, and the prayers that are made out of the grasses. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. That is available in any moment. And as they say in Vegas, and as Jack reminds us, you have to be present to win. Right? You have to be mindful to notice that the prayers are made out of grasses. Right? You have to be present to be touched by you know, the mother doe you know, tending to her fawn. You have to be present to look at the night sky and the dazzling array of stars. You have to be mindful to feel the soft grass underneath your feet. Or smell the the odiness of the grasses as you walk out to your car and you feel the moist air from from the salty fog. So our relationship to the earth and our relationship to nature gives us another vehicle or conduit to um, express one's practice. Whether it's love or compassion, joy, appreciative joy or equanimity, compassionate action, engaging, being mindful of one's actions and what one eats and how, what one consumes and the resources that one uses. Right? This is all an expression of our heartfulness and respectfulness and care for how we live in an interdependent world. So I'm going to close with a couple of pieces that point to this. I'm going to first... Uh, say a line from uh, Bishop Michael Curry, who gave that amazing sermon on love at the royal wedding. And if you, how many of you watched the royal wedding? But Sharon and I watched the royal wedding <laughs> during the love and kindness retreat. <laughs> and um, Bishop Michael Curry, I believe, is from is it Chicago? Um, gave this beautiful eulogy on love. And there's one line that I stood out for me. He said, "When love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary." When, earth, when love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary. So I'm going to close with a couple of things. One is from Robert Aiken Roshi. It's a piece called Verses for Environmental Practice. And again, it's a way, he was a beautiful Zen teacher who lived very much connected to the earth. And um, his way of expressing heartfulness uh, in relationship. Waking up in the morning, I vow with all beings to be ready for the sparks of dharma from flowers, children, or birds. Sitting alone in the Zazen, I vow to remember I am sitting together with mountains, children, and bears. Looking up at the sky, I vow to remember this infinite ceiling in every room of my life. When I stroll in the city, I vow to notice how lichen and grasses never give up in despair. Watching a spider at work, I vow to cherish the web of the universe. Touch one point and everything moves. When people praise me for something, I vow to return to my vegetable garden and give credit where credit is due. 
Preparing the garden for seeds, I vow to nurture the soil to be fertile each spring for the next 1,000 years. With tropical forests in danger, I vow to raise hell with people responsible and slash my consumption of trees. When resources are scarcer and scarcer, I vow to consider the law of proportion, my have as another's have not. Hearing the crickets at night, I vow to keep my practices simple over and over again. And falling asleep at last, I vow to enjoy the dark and the silence and rest in the vast unknown. So I love that. Very simple, very immediate, very practical. And lastly, I'll close with this beautiful prayer, uh, school prayer by Diane Ackerman. And um, I, I read every nature teaching every practice that I give in nature because it's such a beautiful expression of uh, love made visible through compassionate action. She says, In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, and an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors and the day that embraces it and the cloud veils drawn over it and the uttermost night and the crowning seasons of firefly and apple, I will honor all life wherever and in whatever form it may dwell on earth my home and in the mansions of the stars. So calling you back to the reflection from the Buddha of radiating kindness to all beings, I hope this talk was a way of just, you know, inviting some reflection about what it means to love all beings and including nature and all of the beings in it and how that contact with the natural world is a support and and illuminates the capacity of the heart. So, thank you everybody. Very nice to be with you. I'll probably be, so I think I'm here. Um, Romy said I'm here. Am I here? Friday, teaching a day long on insight meditation. And um, I've got some information about my books and my teachings. I'm, I'm running a mindfulness teacher training coming up soon in the fall. If you're interested, um, talk to me about that. Through the Mindfulness Training Institute. It's a wonderful year long teacher training. And I'm still accepting people into my nature teacher training. If this talk on nature touched you and you want to find out more about how to facilitate leading mindfulness work in nature, please also either go to my website, markcoleman.org, or shoot me an email through one of those websites. Okay, thank you. Be well. Enjoy this beautiful paradise we live in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.